Let's come to God and ask for his help as we look at his word together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us now so that we would remember your ancient laws and find comfort in them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Matthew, and we've been learning about John the Baptist and seeing what a great man he was. How great was John the Baptist, this man that we read of in Matthew chapter 3? Well, if you look in Luke's Gospel, he, we understand that he was filled with the Spirit even before birth. He leapt in his mother's womb in the presence of Mary and pregnant Mary with Jesus inside her. Uh, we also understand that he was prophesied about. Uh, we see a prophecy fulfilled even here in uh, John chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, that the Isaiah the prophet had prophesied about John the Baptist with the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. He was also known to be prophesied about in Malachi, which we had read for us before. Uh, the prophet Malachi prophesied about John. We also recognise that he was a great man because he had a humble lifestyle. And we looked at that when we looked at verse 4. Um, when I preached on that passage in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, we see that John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. He was a man of great humility, a simple man, but also a powerful preacher. And he had a popular ministry. We see in verse 5 that he didn't go out preaching and no one heard him. Uh, we read in verse 5, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. And that ministry was an effective ministry. It wasn't that he just preached and lots of people heard him. But we read in verse 6, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John the Baptist was a great man. He was someone who was filled with the Spirit from birth. He was prophesied about. He led a life of humility. He had a popular ministry and an effective ministry. But what does John tell us in the verses that are before us today for us to examine? Well, he tells us that one after him is greater than he is. We read in verse 11, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful, who is greater than I. John the Baptist was one who was preparing the way for someone else who was far greater. And that's what we see in the prophet Isaiah. He said, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. How great is the person that is coming after John? Well, John tells us that he is not worthy to carry his sandals. Verse 11 of Matthew 3, it says, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. To us today, that may not seem like that big a deal, um, that carrying someone's shoes is not that an unworthy task. I used to be a podiatrist. I've touched many people's feet. I've picked up their shoes. I've put people's socks on. I've put people's shoes on for them. And I've picked up many shoes around the house, not just my own. Uh, but in that day and age, shoes were a lot more filthy uh, than we have today with our surface roads and surface pavements and a lack of manure upon our pathways. And so it was actually a rule that a rabbi, a Jewish teacher, could not tell one of his students to carry his shoes. People who touched your shoes would have to be the lowest of the servants. It was a filthy job and considered to be dishonourable, really. And so John the Baptist says that this person that is coming after him is so great that John is not worthy to do the job that you could not command a disciple to do, that only a low servant would do. But he's not even a low servant in comparison to this person that is coming. 
But why is this person so great? Why is he greater than this great prophet who is John the Baptist? Well, John tells us. He says in verse 11, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This person coming after John the Baptist is greater than John the Baptist because John baptises with water, but this person will baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that he will baptise people with the Holy Spirit? Well, some believe that this is a reference to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, that when this person comes, he will regenerate people by baptising them with the Holy Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is used as a proof text for that. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, where the Apostle Paul says, For we were all baptised by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one Spirit to drink. There, it's clearly talking about the work of regeneration because we were baptised by one spirit into one body, which is, of course, the body of Christ Jesus, his people. And so the, one of the spirit's functions is to regenerate people, to baptise them into the body of Christ. But what else could this baptism by the Holy Spirit refer to? Well, it could refer to the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. There's the work of the Holy Spirit, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, where he changes someone's heart so that they live for God instead of for themselves. But the Holy Spirit also empowers people. He fills them with strength for his work. And this text is even picked up in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples just before the day of Pentecost, and he says, For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit which of course is fulfilled at the day of Pentecost, where flames of fire came and the apostles were able to speak in languages that they'd never studied before. And were able, throughout the book of Acts, to be able to do wonderful miracles in the name of Jesus Christ. And so people, as they look at this text, they say, oh, so this person that is coming is, uh, is someone that will baptise with the Spirit, regenerating people. Or they say, he will come and he will baptise people with the Spirit so that they are empowered to do the works of God great works of God. But then people will also look at how this person is more powerful than John the Baptist because he will baptise people with fire. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, John the Baptist says. Now what is this baptising with fire? Well, it could refer to the Spirit's baptism, that they could be tied together. So when it says baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, it's the same thing. Uh, that when you're baptised with the Spirit, you're baptised with the Spirit's fire. And so it could refer to regenerating work, that as he burns off our sin, when he, he, he makes us a new person and the old man is taken away, that the Spirit regenerates us with fire. Or it could also refer to the empowering work of the Spirit as well. As the tongues of fire came at Pentecost, they were baptised with fire, so to speak, there at Pentecost as they were filled with the, work, the power of the Spirit to do great work. What else could it be referring to? That it may not be referring to the Holy Spirit's baptism, maybe it's referring to something else that's characterized by fire. Well, it could refer to the sanctifying, the purifying work that the Spirit does within a, a Christian as he burns away the sin that is in, within us. And often he does it by suffering. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine 
and may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Maybe what is being spoken of here by John the Baptist is that this person coming after us will baptise us with fire where he will purify us. And he often used pain to do so. But as he does so, we are used to bring praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. And some people speak about a baptism of fire, referring to pain. If you're introduced to something that is very painful, they say you're undergoing a baptism of fire. And so that may be what is referred to here. What else could the baptism of fire refer to? Well, it may refer to the fiery judgment that is to come, and particularly to come to unbelievers. If you look at these verses here, the word fire is actually used in this passage a number of times, and even in the verse before and the verse after verse 11. Look with me at verse 10. It says, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What fire is being referenced there? It's the hellfire, the wrath of God that is poured out upon unbelievers. And then if you look at verse 12, it says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What is being referred to there? The hellfire that is to come upon unbelievers. And so if we were going to be consistent within these three verses, we would say that when it says fire there, it would mean the same thing every time. And so what... This person coming after John the Baptist will do is he will judge unbelievers with fire. But some people even say it may refer to the fire that will test the work of believers as well. We read in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day The day, the judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. So it's a believer who receives his reward. But if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through flames. So what you do in this world as a Christian, it will be tested by fire, the Apostle Paul says. And it may be burned up if it is not good. But if it is good, it will go through the flames. And so maybe that is what is being spoken of here. And we do see the saving work mentioned in verse 12. It doesn't just talk there about the the judgment on unbelievers. We see in verse 12 it says, His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn. Speaking of that process by which God, this person coming after John, He will gather his wheat into his barn. And so maybe that is what is being referred to when it says that he will come with fire. So which is it? Which is the interpretation for what it means that we'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit? Or which is it for what it means that we will be baptised with fire? Well, it could be multiple fulfilments. Maybe we don't have to narrow down on one. The Old Testament prophets had a way of prophesying that had a now fulfilment and then a not yet fulfilment. So it could be, when we're talking about the baptism of the Spirit, refer to the regenerating work of the Spirit that is going to happen to those who are listening to John as he preaches, that the one coming after will regenerate them, but also that he will fill them and empower them down the track. And maybe one day he will test their work 
that they do by the Spirit's power on that great day. So maybe we don't have to narrow it down to one. Maybe we can take it as multiple fulfilments of this baptism of fire and this baptism of the Spirit. And so what are we then to do this morning? Are we to spend our time working out precisely what is this baptism and what this fire is? Or do we hide behind the idea that it's multiple fulfilments? We could do that. We could spend the rest of our time looking at which one it exactly is. And you could have my opinion. And I could cite lots of authors that hold this position and then lots of authors that hold the other position. And there's good people on both sides. I've read many of them this week. And so it was a bit of a a problem, a dilemma for me this morning to get up and say what I believe would be the case. What is being referred to by the Apostle John when he says that this one coming will baptise with fire and he will baptise with the Holy Spirit. But if we were to do that, spend the rest of our time trying to work out what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit and what is this baptism of fire? Wouldn't that be to miss the point of why John brought up the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this baptism of fire? Why did John speak about the baptism of the Spirit and the baptism of fire in this passage? Why did he speak about such things? It was to show that Jesus Christ, the one coming after him, is greater than he is. He is a great prophet, filled with the Spirit from birth, before birth, prophesied about, amazing preaching ministry, but the one coming after him is greater. Now, if we want to understand regeneration, if we want to understand empowering work of the Holy Spirit, if we want to understand sanctification, that purifying work by which God makes us increasingly holy, if we want to understand the judgment of believers and the judgment of unbelievers on that great day, we can easily go to other passages of Scripture. We can easily go in other passages of Scripture, and I mentioned some of those even this morning. Those doctrines don't depend upon John the Baptist's words here in Matthew chapter 3. And so no matter what we believe is being taught, when John says, this person is going to baptise with the Spirit and with fire, at the end of the day, we know the point is, is that this person coming, Jesus Christ, the Lord himself, is the one who does all these things. Who regenerates? Who empowers? Who purifies? Who judges both believers and unbelievers? It's Jesus Christ, which means that Jesus is more powerful. He is greater than John the Baptist. And so you can debate amongst yourselves after the service as to what John precisely meant by baptism of the Holy Spirit and baptism of fire. But whatever your conclusion is, it will support the grand conclusion which John wants to impress upon his hearers at that time and what he impresses upon us today. And what is that? That John is nothing compared to Jesus Christ. And who would be the first to tell us that? John the Baptist himself. John encouraged people to repent. But the one coming after him, Jesus Christ, grants repentance. And he is the one who then puts people in the heavenly barn. John doesn't. John baptised the outside of the body with water. 
But the one coming after him, Jesus Christ, he baptises the inside soul with the Spirit himself and with fire. John warns of the fire that is coming, but Jesus is actually the one who puts people into the hellfire. We see that in verse 12, made so clear. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John the Baptist never did that and never will. It is Jesus Christ who puts people into the hellfire. John warned about it again and again and we've seen that as we've looked at John. He warned the Pharisees as they came to him and the Sadducees. He warned, but he didn't put them in the hellfire. This person coming is greater. Why? Because he will put them in the hellfire. John doesn't regenerate. John doesn't empower. John doesn't sanctify. John doesn't judge unbelievers or save believers. It is Jesus Christ who does. And so John is not even worthy to carry the sandals of the person coming after him. And John illustrates his position. He illustrates it here. Um, by speaking about how he is not worthy to carry the sandals, but he also illustrates his position in relation to the one coming after him by giving the illustration of a best man and a groom, a friend of a bridegroom and a groom in John's Gospel. Turn with me now to John chapter 3, where we have this wonderful illustration that John tells his disciples when they start to get a little bit uppity that Jesus is attracting more people than John. Look with me at John chapter 3, which is on page 1052, if you have a church Bible, page 1052, and I'll read from verse 22. John chapter 3, reading from verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John also was baptising at Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. You testified about this person, now all these people are going to him and not coming to you anymore. What are you going to do, John? Your ministry is failing here. And what does John do? Well, we read verse 27. To this, John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. 
The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. What's the job of a best man, of a groomsman? It's to encourage the union of the groom and the bride. He's also, he's even meant to, in this picture, he's meant to bring the bride or mind the bride until the bridegroom comes. What's not the best man's job? Stealing the affection of the bride away from the groom. That's not his job. His job is to promote the union between groom and bride. And we need to remember this. We need to do the same. Why? Because we are supposed to be John the Baptist. We are supposed to be John the Baptist. Why? Well, God in his mercy uses Christians to bring people to Christ. Why in his mercy? Well, because we aren't worthy to carry the sandals of Christ Jesus. But in his mercy, Christ uses us as his best man, as one of his groomsmen. How? By getting us to tell people to repent. By getting us to tell people to be baptised, like John did. By using us to tell people, you want to get into the heavenly barn. And you want to escape the hellfire. He uses us to tell people to do that. And how are we supposed to do that? How are we ultimately supposed to serve as the best man? Well, we're to make much of Christ Jesus. To make much of Christ Jesus, not ourselves. Why? Because we can never save anyone. We can never save anyone. But it is Christ who saves. Christ saves people. A fire alarm doesn't save anyone. What saves people from a fire? It's the fireman who comes in and quenches the flames. The fire alarm going off doesn't do anything other than warn. It's the fireman who comes in and douses the flames, which is what Christ did. How? He quenched the flames that licked at his grain with his own blood. By dying in the place of his people, he has saved them from the fire that they deserve. As we tell people about hell and about heaven and repentance and baptism, all we're doing is being fire alarms. It is Christ who will save them. Now, why do we need to hear this? Why do we need to hear the fact that we need to make much of Christ and not of ourselves? Well, there's always a temptation to find joy in the bride's affection. Wanting Christians, believers, to desire us, to come to us for the help that they need. We want people to do that. We want to be the popular one and for people to hold us up as their saviour, their messiah. But why is that so wrong? It's an abuse of the privilege that we have of being the best man of Christ Jesus, one of his groomsmen. When we don't even deserve to carry his sandals, he has left us, that left the bride in our care. And if we take her affection and say, look at me, for your needs, 
we are abusing the enormous privilege that was given to us. Just like John would have abused that privilege if he had said, oh yes, we'd better get those disciples back to me. It would have been an abuse of the role that was given to him from heaven. And why else is it so wrong? Well, it just brings pain and sorrow. Why? Because the groom will discipline us for it, for not being the groomsman that we should be. And the bride will eventually see through you because you won't be able to help her. She will realise that you're not the Messiah, that you can't save her from all her problems. And what will she do? She will go to the groom in the end anyway. And why is this so terrible? Well, the pain and sorrow comes, but we miss the greater, the lasting joy. And what is that? Well, it's rejoicing in the groom ourselves. That's what John says in John chapter 3. In verse 29, it says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. If we function as a good best man, when we hear the groom come, it is a joy for us to hear him because we love him more than the bride. She's nice, but he's nicer. And we want him to come and experience the joy of seeing him united with the bride. And we love seeing the bride rejoice in him, not in us. That's a true and lasting joy. It's wonderful if God has used you to bring someone to Christ and you see them rejoice in Jesus. It fills your heart with a joy that cannot be taken away. And as you see someone growing in Christ Jesus, not just regenerated but sanctified in Christ Jesus, it fills your heart with joy that you were used as a friend of the groom to do that. So we need to make sure that we function as we should in the role that we have been given. What are we like, along with John the Baptist? Well, we're like the moon compared to the sun. What does the moon do? It reflects the sun's light in the darkness and allows people to walk a little as they see the light reflected by the moon. But when the sun rises, what happens? The moon pales compared to the sun. It becomes insignificant. Who looks at the moon in the daylight? Everything is focused on the sun. Sometimes you can't even really see the moon. You've really got to look around. Where is the moon? Is it still even there? The sun is so blinding in the heavens. We must remember not to exalt ourselves. Why? Because we're just a dark rock in the sky. A dark rock in the sky. And Jesus allows us, in his mercy, to feebly reflect his light. We can produce no light of our own. The only light we have is a reflection of the sun of righteousness. So let us do that. Let's reflect as much light of the sun as possible. No matter how feebly. So that we can give some light to those who walk in darkness. But let us then push them to walk in the light of the sun altogether. Why? It is far better that people walk in sunlight than moonlight. People like a moonlight stroll. But it's got to be a stroll. You don't go for a moonlight run. If you run at night, you're asking for trouble. People run in the day. 
They walk in the day. They do the heavy lifting during the day. Builders don't work at night outside. It's hard work. They work in the light of day. And that's what we must encourage people to do because it will give them far greater joy to, to live in the light of the sun than to live in the light of a moon. And that goes for us too. As the bride, we have to understand that we must walk in his light too. Not in our own strength, not in the light of others, but in his light. So if you have discussions after the service about what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what is the baptism of fire that Jesus gives, I encourage you to end such discussions by giving glory to the Son, giving glory to Jesus Christ. Because whatever conclusion you make, it will feed that grand conclusion that Christ is everything, that he is greater than any prophet who has come before him. And that will give you greater joy than mulling too deeply over what is the baptism of the Spirit and what is the baptism of fire. Because the Holy Spirit himself would want you to make much of Christ Jesus at the end of such discussions. You may say, but how do I fulfil this? How do I encourage people to go to Christ directly? How do I get people to walk in the sunlight, both bride and unbelievers? Well, it's by encouraging people to confess their sins, not to us, but to Christ. Repent not to me, but repent to Christ. You see that with David. He says, against you and you only have I sinned even as he has sinned against others. And he needs to repent towards those other people. But ultimately, the one that he needs to repent to is Christ. Why? Because only Christ is able to forgive. Only Christ endured the fire that we deserve for our sin. And how else do we get people to go to Christ directly? Well, it's by encouraging people not to come to us for strength and for power in their fight against sin and against the world and against Satan and to save them from their troubles. It's to send them to Christ. Why Christ? Because only Christ can give the Spirit to empower and save us from all our troubles. That's how we do ministry. That's how we reflect the light of Christ, by telling people to look at the sun. We should always feel a bit of a helplessness in our ministry to help others. I, as a pastor, feel this, and you should feel this too. You think, oh, you should by now know how to help everybody, Joel. Sometimes someone sits down next to you and they say something, and I'm like, oh, no. How am I going to help you? And if you're a new believer, you may feel it. You don't know much of the scriptures, and they sit down, and they tell you, they unburden their soul upon you. How am I going to help you? But that's a good feeling. There should be a helplessness in our souls whenever we try to help someone. Why? Because we ultimately can't help them. There's only one who can help them. And that is the one who came after John the Baptist. And that is Jesus Christ. What gives my ministry saving power? What gives my ministry any power? It's by my constant taking people to Christ, constantly taking people 
to Christ, taking people to his word, taking people to him in prayer. That's what gives my ministry any power because it is only Christ who can help them by his word and by his power. And so if you're a believer, reflect the light of Christ Jesus and tell people to go to Christ Jesus. And if you're not a believer, let me help you now by warning you what is clear from the text. You may be tickled by this idea of trying to work out what it means that this person would baptise with the Spirit and with fire. Well, it's not particularly clear from the text. But there is something that is clear from the text. What is clear from the text? From Matthew chapter 3. It is that unbelievers will be burned with unquenchable fire. Matthew chapter 3 says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And this is not news. It's not new. This is an old teaching from the Old Testament as well. And we saw it in Malachi chapter 4. He gave the same warning. He said, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. I warn you now, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, an unquenchable fire is coming. And I encourage you, repent to Christ. Don't repent to me after the service about how terrible you are. Repent to Christ. And then bask in the groom's love. Walk in the sun's light and rise with healing in your wings. Let's come to him in prayer now. Let's speak with him. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the greatest of all. We confess that we do not deserve to carry your sandals because we are mere humans and sinful humans at that. But Lord, we thank you for the privilege of reflecting your light so that people can come to you. Help us never to take your glory from your bride, but to rejoice in you and bringing others to rejoice in you. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who has not repented, Lord, we pray that they would heed the words of John the Baptist now and turn from their sin before the unquenchable fire comes and so that they would be gathered by the winnowing fork into your barn one day, rather than into that fire. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing our final song.